behind it. It's called the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. And before it, um, it refers to what uh, we call the sign of the cross. And if you've been coming to, to Mass or if you have any sort of um, familiarity with Catholicism and Catholic prayer, you've probably seen Catholics make the sign of the cross before. And as we get deeper into sort of the, the study, the material, if you will, that we're talking about, we often say that the two mysteries that stand right at the heart of Catholic Christian faith are the mystery of the Trinity, that the one God mysteriously exists as a trinity of persons, and the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity became man. And in a real way, both of those mysteries are sort of referred to in the sign of the cross. Uh, we pray it by saying, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, while also marking ourselves with a cross over our body. So as we would say, in the name of the Father, typically you place your hand on your head, in the name of, and of the Son, place your hand upon your chest or your stomach, and of the Holy Spirit, and sort of cross over yourself and make the cross, which is the central act of um, of Jesus' mission to save us. And so, in that way, both of those sort of mysteries are, are sort of referred to in that gesture, which typically we use at the beginning and at the end of, of prayers, we would say. So, again, if you've attended Mass, you'll notice that Mass always begins with the sign of the cross and ends uh, with the sign of the cross as well. So, I figured we would just do that today, make the sign of the cross, and then we can pray the Our Father together, which um, you'll find on page 34. Uh, so, I'd like to follow along. We'll start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art, who art in, in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come, come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we'll pray that prayer for the next few uh, weeks. If it's not familiar with you, please feel free to bring this book along with you, and, uh, and we'll learn some more as kind of the, the year goes on. So, very good. Thank you, Father. Thanks. Thank you, Father. Yeah. Um, a while ago, I read some information <coughs> saying that there was a significance when you cross yourself and how you position your fingers. Is mm -hmm. that, like, really important, or does it... Not according to sort of Western Catholicism, but uh, it, there is in, in some Eastern traditions, it, it's really kind of beautiful, and, and you can do this, uh, that they would sort of use three fingers uh, to sign themselves as, a, as sort of a signification of the three persons of the Trinity. And then the other two fingers, they would believe, represent the, the two natures of Jesus, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Um, it's not required. It's, it's a beautiful and a good thing. You won't find most, I don't think, Roman Catholics doing that, but, mm -hmm. um, but typically we would just kind of use an open, open palm to bless ourselves like that. Great. Good. Great question. Sure. All right. There. All right. Any questions from last time? Anything? So our topic for today, actually, let me move this up, is rev God's revelation. So last week we looked at um, basically from man to God, we saw how it's reasonable to think that there's a God from the order we see in the world and from the order we find, especially in ourselves and in our conscience, right, which points to a lawgiver. So today we want to look at the other direction. God, so this is the, we could say, the first marvel of that theology um, ought to, to encounter is God speaks to us. Um, and so we, yes, we seek him, but he's even more and first seeking us. And so that's, the, that's what we want to look at today. Uh, and um, these two directions complement 
each other. So we don't stop looking for him as he's looking for us and speaking to us. Right? And so Catholic theology does both things. We seek him using our reason, and he speaks to us, and we receive that with faith. Right? And so we always want to keep those two together. Right? So, it's, so there are two extremes here, um, faith alone with the idea that reason doesn't have anything to say. But that doesn't make sense because I have to think about what God says. And, and to think about what God says to us, we have to use our reason. And likewise, the reason alone wouldn't make any sense because that would be already denying that he can speak back or speak first. Right? And so we're always going to be using these two. And, um, and there's some things that we can get to by both ways. Right? So reason we saw last time can get to the fact that there's a God who's made us, but God also reveals that. Right? He says to Moses, I am. Right? And so God reveals that he is, but reason can also get to it. Right? And so those, we could say, are natural truths about God that we can get to by both ways. And what would be another example? So God is? Anybody? What's a truth that God reveals, but reason can also get to? Uh-huh. Relational. Okay, that he's relational to us. And that he's, um, he's made us out of love. Right? So reason can get to that. Right? Because otherwise, why would he have made us? So if he's made us freely, he's made us out of love. So that God is love. Um, Valerie, is that's, it? Yes. That's someone who doesn't know the family, but there might be a house fire or something that would just go in and rescue people and put their own life at risk. That love of others, okay. love that they are. Okay. Fantastic. So there are truths that conscience knows. So to love one's neighbor as oneself, the golden rule, those are things that is written on the heart, so everyone knows it, but God also reveals it. Right? And so that would be a perfect example. And then that that's parallel to his love for us. Right? And so Jesus says two commandments go together, to love God and to love neighbor. That's also written on the heart. Right? So God reveals it, but reason can get to it. You, you, I'm sorry, I'm going to leave out philosophy, uh, theology professors. Uh-huh. Great, God is omnipotent, right? If he made us, if he's made the world, he has power over the world, right? So that's something that reason can get to, but God also reveals it. Great. What about that there's one God? Right, so that was revealed to Israel. Right? So that's the great commandment to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Right? And you shall worship him alone. Can reason get to that? What do you think? Yes. Okay, that's the right answer. And how, though? Maybe that, I don't want to put you on the spot. But. I'm just thinking of like, when I was like, reading about Greek mythology and like, when I was in middle school and stuff. Uh -huh. And then we had this pantheon, but Okay, okay. Even in pantheon, even in um, polytheistic religions, right? There's some idol god, some god who's above all the others, who would be the first source, because it makes sense that when there, when there's multiplicity, it goes back to one source. If you say there are two sources that are ultimate, 
right? That would probably be often thought of as good and evil, but that's giving evil too much power to make it its own source. And yeah, so reason can get to that God is one, also from the order of the world and from things like the moral law, right? There's, even in human affairs, right, and there needs to be one ultimate executive, right, in society. Yeah. Even if it's a group, it's got, there's got to be some unity. All right, so yeah, that would be another example. What about truths, so that God is, that he's omnipotent, that he's good, that he's love, and that he loves us, that he's created us, um, and the, we could say the first principles of the moral law, um, and even that we've got an immortal soul, that um, also can be shown by, by reason. That would take a little more time, so I'm just going to throw it out there. But um, that, and we can, most people have a sense, or I should say everyone has a sense, that our spirit in some transcends the physical world and transcends the death of our body. Right? And you can see this in all the religions of the world, have some understanding of life after death. So we could put that in there too. Um, and if there's a, a moral law and there's a God, what about judgment? Right? That too is something that reason can know, that will be judged on how we've lived. Right? And so even judged um, favorably, heaven, and judged negatively, hell. So in some sense, that too, we find not only in Christianity, but in um, the religions of the world. Right? Not always in a perfect form, but great. So those would be a list of things that we can get to by reason and faith. What are some things that we um, only get to by faith? So we call those mysteries. So there are certain things that God reveals that reason never got to before God revealed it. What would be the most important? Sorry, no theology professors. Okay, the incarnation, that God becomes man, right? The incarnation, right? That's the great mystery together with another one. Okay, the Eucharist definitely is a mystery, right? We could never know by reason that God is going to make himself, first he's got to become man and then make himself present um, in the mass under the appearances of bread and wine. I will right, we'll talk about that much later, but um, yeah, so that's definitely a mystery of faith. Right? That we believe just because God has revealed it, and we can't get to that by reason. Uh, an obvious one that we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. All right, well, that's, that's also a mystery, right? That he prepared for becoming man by having his mother conceived without sin. Right, we, just, we made the sign of the cross, which is also the sign of the Trinity. Right? So the Trinity is a mystery that reason can't get to, left to itself, right? That God had to reveal that, and he didn't reveal it directly to Israel. And so it's one of those mysteries that was progressively hinted at, but only finally revealed when God became man, right? So Jesus revealed he was son of the Father and spoke of the Holy Spirit, right? So we call those mysteries. Both, thing, both kinds of truths are revealed by God. Right, the truths that reason can also get to, and the truths that are... So it's easy to see why God has to reveal the mysteries, right? Because we'll never get to them if he doesn't reveal them. 
Why does he reveal the natural truths about him? For example, telling Moses, I am who I am. Or telling, um, likewise through Moses, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Or that he's omnipotent. If reason can get to that, why, why does he need to reveal it? Well, if we look around the world, did most people, maybe most people understood there are gods, but certainly most people didn't understand that he's one. Right? And so God reveals those truths that reason can get to because most people maybe wouldn't ever get there. Right? Yes, Plato and Aristotle gave arguments that God is one, but uh, most people don't have the leisure to spend their whole life doing philosophy, like Plato and Aristotle, right? And so God reveals these things so they can be known by everyone um, without error and with ease, right? Because God has revealed them. Same thing for the moral truths, right? That's why he reveals the Ten Commandments. We can get to the Different cultures of the world that didn't receive God's revelation also know Ten Commandments, right? But God reveals it so that we can all know it um, without error and from the beginning, right? From, the, from our childhood, okay? So he reveals the natural truths for that reason and he reveals the mysteries because without him revealing them, we'd never get there. What's another mystery? So we've got the Trinity, the Incarnation, um, the Immaculate Conception, the Eucharist, Uh -huh. Okay, Mr. those would be the, that's the life of Jesus. So yeah, the different events of his life, we can only know because um, through the Gospels, right? We couldn't figure them out philosophically. Um, and so that's important. We'll talk about that in about a month. We'll go through the mysteries of Jesus' life. Great, his resurrection, right? So that, that God became man, right, that's a mystery, that he rose... Um, is also um, a mystery, and it also points to our future resurrection, right? which is also something that maybe reason could hope for, but we couldn't know that God would do that um, with certainty, right? unless he tells us. Great, the resurrection. Um, two more things you could add here. So we're going to spend some time later on talking about grace, and anybody, what is grace? What do we mean by that? Okay, great. It's something gratuitous. Grace is given freely by God, something that we don't deserve. And it, we mean by it a share of God's own life. To share in God's ability to love. God, we said, is love. And grace is um, being able to share in his way of loving that I can't do by myself and I can't um, isn't do to me and to share in, um, yeah, in his inner life. So that's what we mean by, we'll talk about that. So that too is a mystery. That reason could never, I mean reason, no, no Greek philosopher ever thought that we could share in God's inner life. Um, Aristotle at a certain point speaks about knowing God, right, and to know him as he knows himself, and he says, yeah, that would be great, but you would need to be God to do that. Um, so, so grace is mysterious, and therefore all 
Well, we'll look at later the sacraments that give God's life to us. That's all mysterious. And because it's mysterious, many people just simply uh, leap over it, right? And don't. Um, and so I wasn't surprised that you didn't mention grace as a mystery, but it actually would be um, up there together with all the others. Another thing that I'm not surprised you didn't mention. Okay, creation. In some way, that reason could get to that, but I don't think philosophers did, right? In other words, they, philosophers tend to think the world was just always here. And to think that the world got created out of nothing by God, um, I think that would be like the hardest thing that reason could get to, but we um, are aided by God's revelation. Okay, faith, so that God reveals. Yeah, so just even the very fact that he reveals himself and that we can receive that is mysterious, right? That he can speak to us. Because, again, reason might think, yes, there's God who made the world, but he's, um, he's like a clockmaker who made this, I don't know, clock, clockwork and set it in motion, and then he doesn't, there's no communication, right? And so it's mysterious that he reveals himself to us and that we can receive that and we call that faith, right? Here's the, the, thing, the last thing I was looking for is the church. And the, so I'm not surprised nobody said that because most people think of the church as just something human, right? That's, that's a human institution. But no, right? The reason, one of the reasons to be Catholic is because we think that Jesus founded we, I shouldn't say think, we believe that Jesus founded the church as a mystery, a mystery similar to grace, a mystery in which we're part of his body. Right? So he speaks, St. Paul speaks of the church as the body of Christ. And we're all members of that body? That's mysterious. And we become members at baptism. And so we all belong to one another in this mysterious sense um, and belong to Christ, who's our head, and we're like the pinky or the elbow or something like that. Um, so that, too, is a mystery. Yes, it's got its human side, right, that there are cardinals and things like that. But, but um, there's a mystery aspect to the church um, that comes from her, that goes together with the sacraments that give grace. Right? Because to be, if it's a body and the head is God-made man, and we're members of a body, that means we've got to be sharing in his divine life to be properly members of his body, right? And that's mysterious. We'll look at that later on, okay? So, um, yeah, some of the things God reveals are mysteries, and the mysteries we can never fully understand. The truths that reason can get to, we can understand to a certain degree, right, that there is a God, but who that God is, that's mysterious, Right? And so the mysteries are never, so I teach theology, right? I've been teaching theology for a long time, and I might be tempted to think I can understand one of the mysteries that I teach. That would be folly, right? <laughs> and it ought to work the opposite, right? That the more one spends one's life contemplating the mysteries, the more you ought to recognize how mysterious and marvelous they are. So that's really, this is one of the goals for a class like this, is that you come out of here thinking, oh, there's more to this than I thought. And um, each class, hopefully, um, ought to have that effect, right? And for me, too.
there's a famous story about St. Augustine that he was writing a book on the Trinity and um, right, that supreme mystery. And he actually has a fantastic, I mean, his book on the Trinity is just one of my favorite books and I think one of the great theology books. But there's a story that um, while he was thinking about this, um, he saw this boy um, digging in, on the beach um, a little hole, right, and taking, he had a little bucket, getting water from the ocean and pouring it into the little hole. And so what are you doing? Well, I'm trying to empty out the ocean and put it into my hole. That's probably not going to work, right? And so Saint Augustine thought that was stupid. <laughs> That's foolish. You're not going to be able to do that. Well, how much less are you going to be able to understand the Trinity and put that into your mind, which is smaller than that hole? Anyway, yeah. but not that we shouldn't try, right? But again, the, the fruit of it is to have more awe, yeah. just even to recognize that the things are mysterious is the beginning. Okay, yeah, I think we already covered this. Yeah, so this is why God reveals things that, um, that reason can get to. Okay. So when we, both, for both kinds of truths, we said we want to use reason and faith at the same time. And one of the things that we do when we use our reason about about the natural proofs, truths is we can try and show them, right? We can try and demonstrate that there is a God. But with regard to the mysteries, we can't do that, right? I can't demonstrate that God's a trinity. But I still want to use my reason, and it'll be doing something different. It'll be looking for analogies. So this is really important. In thinking about the mysteries, how can I think about it? Well, it's above me. Let's say that God is a trinity, right? That's above us. But we'll still try and make some analogy to human life. And so we have some, so one way to do that is to recognize, well, in human life, um, things that are done as solitarily, um, that things that I do um, when I'm in solitude, um, I want to share them, I don't know. So um, I'm, if I'm you know, mountain climbing and I'm just by myself, it's not as much fun as if there's my wife there and we can look at something together. We share, right? So, so in human life, communion is a great good. And so that we can make an analogy. Well, it makes sense that in God's own inner life, it's fitting. So I'm going to use this word a lot during this course. It's fitting. By that I mean it's, it makes sense by analogy that that should be in God too, some kind of communion. Right? And that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be communion in the inner life of God. Or love, right? Interpersonal love in the inner life of God. We'll come back to this later on. That would be an example. Or um, when you love somebody, you want to share their life. And so this, it's fitting, it's mysterious, but it's fitting that God would want to become man. And it seems it might seem just totally strange. Why would God, who is everything, want to become man so that he could you know, have um, headaches and, and all the things that go with human life, be utterly dependent, and, um, and be crucified? Well, so we can make an analogy that when we love another, right, we want to share their life, and we want to share even their suffering. 
insofar as we can. And so it makes sense, it's fitting, that God would want to take on what is ours. Right? So what we're doing there is we're making an analogy between human experience and God. Right? That's doing theology. Right? That's one of the main things we'll do. And try and make those connections. All right? And basically what we're doing is from creation, to, since he made creation and he made the human heart, there should be a resemblance. And so that's why we can do that kind of thing. Think about God with analogy. All right, when we speak about God, um, we have to recognize that um, since he's mysterious to us, he transcends us, my, cat, my human categories, I have to use them, right? We have to use our human categories to speak about him because otherwise we'd just be, right? We, otherwise we couldn't say anything at all. But when we use our human categories to speak about God, we have to recognize, well, he transcends them. And so my human language is going to fall short. Still have to use it, right? But it's going to be inadequate. And so we always have to be um, purifying our, um, the images that we use or the analogies to think about God. Okay? And sometimes we forget that, right? Because we, we want to use our imagination to think about God. And as soon as our imagination is at work, it's going to imagine things on a human level, right? With human limitations. So our words fall short. We still need to use them, but they fall sh infinitely short. Okay. So yes, we make use of these analogies, but there's always a greater difference than there is resemblance between God and us. I don't know, I don't want to make that too strong because we need to think about him in relation to our human experience. But we have to recognize, right, he's, he's above us. And how much? Infinitely. That means he's more above us than we're above worms. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, God has revealed himself to us. So the catechism says it pleased God in his goodness and wisdom to reveal himself, to speak to us. And that's, we saw last time, God's plan is to, he, why did he make us? Anybody? Why did he make us? To enjoy what he created. Okay, to enjoy what he created, but also? To share in his goodness. To share in his goodness. Great. Could take it even further. Right? So sharing in his goodness would also be enjoying what he's created. To worship him, okay. But again, it's even stronger. He's made us in his image, in his image to share in his own happiness. Right? In other words, he's made us to be his friends. Um, right? He's made us so that we can share as, right, as intimate friends in his own happiness, in his blessed life. But he's infinitely above us, right? So that's mysterious that he's made us, because we said he's more above us than we're above, but we can't enter into friendship with worms. Um, but he's able to 
enter into friendship with us. And therefore, he speaks with us already from the beginning as a friend to friend. All right, so that's, that's the way we should think of God's re- revealing himself to us. And that's the way we should think of when we read the Bible, for example. Right? That he's revealing himself to us as, yes, God to his creature, but as someone who wants to enter into a friendship. Ultimately, as a father to son or daughter, and as a husband to wife. Right? Those are the images that Revelation gives us. All right, so, so he's made us to share in his inner life, and it makes sense that he'll speak to us, right? If he wants us to share. I mean, it would be silly to want to enter into friendship with somebody and, and never speak with them. Yeah, so he wants to communicate his own life to us. And he speaks to us. And you can see that. So he's spoken to us from the beginning, right? So through prophets. But the best way to speak to us would be what? So he's through in the prophets, he's speaking through somebody else as a mediator, right? So God makes use of mediators. But the best way would be if he would speak to us himself, right? Not using a mediator. And so that's why he becomes man so that he can speak to us in a human way, not through another, right? but through himself. And so his... So God reveals himself to us in a way similar to how we reveal ourselves to others. Right? And so we reveal ourselves to others using words, right? so I'm trying to do right now, but... Um, Words can only go so far, right? And there's certain things that you can communicate only by deeds, right? And so um, God communicates not only by speaking to us, right, in words, but by deeds. And the ultimate deeds would be, well, take in the Old Testament, what would be the deeds in the Old Testament? The Israelites. Yeah, fantastic. The Exodus, right? So that's the great deed. God shows that he's in relationship to to Israel, not just by speaking through Moses to Israel, but by liberating them, right? By taking them out of slavery and bringing them um, in a long journey to the promised land. So the deed speaks more loudly than words, but God uses both. What's the ultimate deed? Yeah, fantastic. And we could say first, becoming man, right? So that's a deed. God becomes a human being, right? And in his humanity, he gets crucified, right? So that's the ultimate deed that speaks the same thing as if God says, I love you, right? But it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to do it, right? So of the two, if you have to pick... Right, they go together, but which would be ultimately the most important? Right? It's the deeds are even more important than the words. But we wouldn't understand the deeds without the words. Right? So the two words and deeds go together. Right? The words explain the deeds, and the deeds show the deeper truth of those words. Right? So God's revelation is going to be using both. 
words and actions. And then, so there's this principle philosophers use. And everything is received. And if I want to give something to you, or to anyone, let's say to a baby, I have to, I, I can't give a gift to a baby that um, would be the same as one to an adult, right? It has to be on the level of the person receiving. So everything is received according to the mode of the receiver. That's this is a great principle, use it all the time. And so God uses it. And so he reveals himself according to our nature and our condition. All right, so God's revelation. And, and so part of the human condition is that we learn things gradually, right? And that's, so the human condition is that we start tiny, right? And we grow up and um, our learning progresses and unfolds step by step, right? And so God reveals himself step by step, right? So this is why there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? This is why God started revealing himself in some way from the beginning and then um, more approximately through Abraham, right, from Abraham leading up, preparing for the ultimate, right? And the ultimate, we said, is when he himself becomes man and can speak to us in his own voice and can do deeds in his own person, like being crucified. Right? So that's going to be, so of all revelation, that's the culmination. But he doesn't start there, right? It'll start preparing for that thousands of years before. All right, so God's revelation is gradual and unfolding. So progressive. Um, and so we want, when we read the Old Testament, we have to keep that in mind, right? That this isn't the last word, right? So there are things that are imperfect in the Old Testament, not because God is imperfect in revealing himself, but because we're imperfect, right? In other words, because we need to... Um, progress. Oh, does that make sense? So it's going to be progressive. And what else? It's going to, if God wants to reveal himself to us, and he uses words as well as deeds, he's going to have to make use of human language. Why, that's kind of, right? That seems, I mean, that's just obvious, right? If he's going to speak to us, he can't speak God language. He's got to speak human language. And he's got to speak a human language that was understood by the people that he Revealed himself to. And since he revealed himself in a special way to Israel, that revelation is in Hebrew. Right? When you think about I mean, sure, we might be, take that for granted, but God chose a particular language. Right? And so that language is, in some sense, of all the languages of earth, privileged because God spoke in that language because the people that he was speaking to spoke that language. Right? And then at the time of the, uh, of the New Testament, um, yes, the writers of the New Testament, their first language would have been um, a dialect of Hebrew, Aramaic, but um, since they were speaking to people throughout the Mediterranean world, there just happened to be a common language. So today it would be English, pretty much, in the modern term. At that time it was Greek, right? So Greek was the, the, the most commonly spoken language at the time of Jesus, and so the apostles wrote their letters and their gospels in that language, right? And so God speaks to men using a particular language that happened to be the language spoken, right, at, by us. And that makes sense, right, because he's speaking to us. Um, all right, so he makes use of a language. 
And another thing is, if he wants to speak to us using a language, he's going to make use of the metaphors and um, ways of speaking proper to that language and culture. Right? So again, God, since he spoke to Israel, ancient Israel, he happened to make use of a certain cultural mentality, ancient Israel's cultural mentality, and makes use of the metaphors and the ways of speaking and thinking proper to that culture. All right? And again, it makes sense, right? If he's going to speak to us, he's got to use our language. But that might make it a little difficult for us today when we read the Bible because we may miss a lot of those things right? and may think that God is saying one thing and he's actually saying another because we're not understanding that mentality of ancient Israel. Okay. Um, another, so if he's going to speak to us in our mode, our mode is historical. And so God reveals himself also using historical events, right? So we already saw that. That would be a good example is the Exodus. So God reveals himself, his love, by historical events that happened to this people, Israel. And part of that revelation is even the bad things that happen, right? So if there had been no slavery under Pharaoh, he wouldn't be able to show his power um, in liberating them. And so even that he makes use of, the, of history in its negative and positive aspects um, to reveal himself. All right? And what did I leave out? Um, so gradually, yeah, and everything building up to the ultimate revelation when he himself um, becomes man and speaks to us directly. But even there, he's still speaking. So Jesus spoke Aramaic, a particular language that, um, that practically nobody speaks today. And, um, and yes, he grew up in a particular culture of ancient Israel, and so his way of speaking um, reflects that culture. And something that's really, there's something very beautiful about that, right? Because in all of this, God who's omnipotent doesn't make use of his omnipotence to reveal himself to us, right? But he makes use of our limitations to reveal himself to us. Mm-hmm. Just an observation, speaking on that. So he had to, because he came as man, and he was baptized by John the Baptist, mm-hmm. uh, what were the words? This is my son. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. So he had to slowly reveal himself to himself in his human Ah, uh, okay. Um, we're going to look at that later. That's a spectacular question. Um, but sure, his human, um, even, so Jesus himself grew just like any other child, and so had to go through the stages. And so that also is part of, I like to call it, maybe this doesn't work well, um, there's not a good word in English, but um, God comes to our level. So in, literally, con, um, he condescends. That means he comes down to be with us. But when we use that word, it means something negative. Somebody not really coming to my level, um, treating me condescendingly. But here, I'm, I'm, God really does that, right? In other words, he comes to our level precisely, um, and even in his humanity, you know, being nine months in Mary's womb as a fetus, totally dependent on her, learning how to speak through Mary and Joseph, right? learning, allowing others like John the Baptist to initiate things like baptizing him. But we'll, we'll look later on at what Jesus knew. That's a difficult question, and I'm going to put that off for now. Mm-hmm. Can I give a funny example of a, of a metaphor? 
translate in our culture. Okay. So the, the church song, He Will Raise You Up on Eagle's Wings, mm-hmm. they get that from the King James translation of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. You know, God will raise you up like an eagle. Mm-hmm. The word isn't eagle. The word is vulture. Uh-huh. But the English people translating it didn't think that sounded as poetic. Sure, it does, right, so in they English. They changed it to, to eagle because they were like, well, I mean, vultures are nasty. Mm-hmm. So they... Yeah, so when it talks about, you know, like, like, a, like a vulture having her brood under her wings, mm-hmm. they change it to eagle because that sounded better to mm-hmm. English ears. But and that makes sense, right. right? So God reveals using the culture, a particular culture, and if we want to understand it well, sometimes we have to translate it right. into our own terms. Thank you. Okay, yeah, so this is, we could say, the first marvel that God wants to speak to mankind, but here's the danger. We could say, yeah, he wants to speak to mankind, but we also have to make it personal. He wants to speak to me and to you. I know that he wants to speak to mankind, but in, in the personal and the particular, right? And this is what prayer is about. So God speaks to us, revealing himself in this public, universal way, but he also speaks to us in a personal, one-on-one way. Right? And that's, we're going to talk about that, I think, in a couple of sessions. We'll have a first section on prayer, and then we'll come back to it at the end of the class. Right? So he speaks to us, yes, in Scripture, as he speaks to all men. But he's always wanting to enter into a relationship that's properly personal and therefore directed to our person. And he does it out of love. All right, I think we got all this. He uses human language, history, actions, gradual. And human, I may, what I didn't mention was, um, if God wants to speak to us, so I mentioned he uses mediators. And that's a very human thing, right? Because it's part of human nature that we are social beings and we learn from others. Because sometimes people um, have this idea that, why should I believe some revelation that was given you know, t- through Moses? And even, even Moses' sister, Miriam, and his brother Aaron, at a certain point, were upset about that. Why is God always speaking through Moses? Why doesn't he choose me to speak through? Um, and we might want to, you know, every, each of us to have a private revelation. God, um, and sometimes he does give private revelations, right? And he certainly always wants to speak to us one-on-one. But normally, he doesn't give us a new revelation when we speak to him one-on-one, right? He wants us to believe the public revelation that he gave through mediators. So it's interesting to think why he does that. Why doesn't he just reveal himself fully to each one of us, just as much to me as to Moses, Abraham, or even Jesus? Anybody? Okay, and so why, why, if he spoke to me personally and revealed himself, why wouldn't that? Well, he, re- he, he spoke through mediators before mm-hmm. already, mm-hmm. so why not seek out his companionship through the mediator? Okay. Why, you know, he spoke already. Okay. Why do I need anything? Right, why do we need to start from scratch each person? Right. It wouldn't be... If he spoke simply, he revealed himself totally to each person from scratch, it would be not respecting the human condition. 
and it, would having to, it wouldn't respect what he, he couldn't build on what has already been done. Right? So he makes use of mediators because we're social beings and it's natural for human um, culture that we build on what came before, right? Think of technology. Techn it would be absurd to think that every um, technology has to be reinvented by everyone, um, uh, myself, right? We, that would be the destruction of all human culture and all human learning, right? And so he uses mediators because that's, that's what human beings do. That's, that's what makes us social, and that's what makes us have to rely on one another. So if God revealed himself in that kind of way, personally to each one, there would be no need for a church or for Israel before the church. Right? And one of his purposes in revealing himself is to bring us into communion right, with him and with each other. And so this is why he uses mediators. So in ancient Israel, he spoke through Moses, through one, so that all Israel, first of all, would get the same revelation and so that they would form a people molded by that same revelation, and so that we can have all a role in it. So ancient Israel, and yes, he revealed himself through Moses, but how would the new generations know that? Because parents have to teach it to their children, right? The rabbis teach it to the, in the synagogue, the high priests teach it, etc. And so that gives, and the same thing is true today, right? He uses mediators because that gives and us in the church, a role to play, right? So even though he's chosen some to be prophets in a more special sense, all of us are called to share in his prophetic mission, right? And that can be done in different ways, right? It can be done, one way to do it is like teaching class, like this. Um, but it can, it's meant to be, needs to be done by everyone, right? So every parent needs to do that, teaching their children about the faith. Right? So that's a beautiful thing. We, we act as mediators and as prophets insofar as we do that. Right? And then just even in my own life, let's say in the workplace or in relationships, in conversation, we're supposed to be prophetic in the sense of passing on, um, at least by example, um, our faith. Right? So, so he makes use of mediators also because we're social, so that it can reach everyone in a hum properly human way, um, not starting again from scratch each time, right? but building on everything that's gone before. And also, it gives us a share in that mission. Um, later on, when we look at the sacraments, that's the, one of the purposes of the sacrament of confirmation, is confirmation gives to um, the faithful who, receive, who get confirmed a share in Christ's mission of being prophet, king, and priest. And so all the, the baptized and confirmed faithful share in that mission. Right? And that means to share in being a mediator, yeah, not in, this, in the same degree right? as Jesus is the one mediator. But we're also called to mediate. Does that make, make sense? And that's a, that's a really beautiful thing. I think, I mean, do most people realize this when they get confirmed um, no, unfortunately, but, um, but that's partly um, our fault in not making that clearer, not um, showing that how beautiful that is. Questions on that? Okay, so maybe just, so from the, uh-huh, Jasmine? So, Did, mm -hmm. it makes me think of, 
Okay, great question. So Moses was a, you're, you're right. I mean, because we could, um, Moses was a prophet in a different sense than we are today. And the reason is because he was given new revelation that hadn't been given yet. That's come to a close. So during, throughout history, above all from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, Revelation was ongoing and progressive, public revelation. It continued, in other words, new things were being taught this century that hadn't been taught before. So for example, the prophet Isaiah made, um, spoke about resurrection from the dead and Daniel made it even clearer. And something that Moses didn't, so Moses spoke new things, but there were certain things that Moses didn't teach that the prophets hundreds of years later taught that weren't in the books of Moses. Right? And then things that Jesus taught, like the Trinity, that weren't clear in the prophets. So there's a, a gradual progressive unfolding. Is that still going on today? So that we might, here in this class, somebody might be a new Moses. Answer? No. <laughs> no. And why not? Because you might say, well, that's unfair. Why would it stop? Yeah, because God has become man and has made the perfect sacrifice of himself, being crucified on Calvary, and rose from the dead, founded his church, instituted the sacraments, and completed the work of public revelation. So it's actually come to a conclusion, and therefore we don't expect a new revelation tomorrow with a new Moses that would add something essential. Because it, if that were to happen, that would imply that Jesus didn't um, reveal um, everything essential. And, that, and so isn't that, I mean, Muslims do think that, right? Muslims think that Jesus didn't reveal everything essential and Muhammad finished the job. But that doesn't make sense if we believe that Jesus is God-made man and Muhammad is not. Right? There, it wouldn't make sense. Um, isn't Jesus supposed to come back to help? That's so complete. <laughs> okay. Great question. The answer is yes and no. So, yes, he's going to, so Jesus is going to come back at the end of time and the dead will rise, and we will see God face to face. And all, everything will be revealed because we'll see God face to face. And so it won't be a new revelation of the same kind, like new things, still revealed in the darkness of faith, but it'll be opening our eyes in a definitive way. And that already happens, actually, to those who get to heaven. So all the blessed in heaven already are seeing, and now nothing is hidden anymore. And so, yes, that's still to come. But that isn't the same kind of revelation. Does that make sense? Not, 
um, the prophets are revealing things still in, hidden in mystery. And Jesus will be, um, when he come, returns, everything will be opened up. All right, does that make sense? So we shouldn't expect something like the Book of Mormon, right? In other words, another book to be found from the 19th century that would add something to what God has revealed by stepping into human history and revealing through his, the deeds of his life, right? So that's gonna be the, so from the Christian point of view, Jesus's life is the culmination of revelation. And so we don't expect anything fundamentally new. All right. Does that mean that um, nothing for the church to think about in terms of what God has revealed? No, right? We said at the beginning that um, a beautiful task is to think about what God has revealed using human reason. And so the church grows in her understanding of what God has revealed. So there is development century after century. We call it development of doctrine. So it's not as if um, there's nothing, right, God, so one could think, well, if everything is revealed by the time of the death of Jesus, and actually what we usually say is the death of the apostles, right? So Jesus um, fully revealed God to man, but he revealed it to a circle, the 12, who shared his life in a special way. And so we put, uh, and he promised the Holy Spirit would help bring them, because they didn't understand everything that Jesus taught them, um, during his earthly life, because they were still uh, imperfect in all kinds of ways. And so he promised them the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would bring to their mind all the things that he had taught them. And, and, uh, and so we say the death of the apostles is the close of public revelation. And that's why there isn't, so this is all an answer to your great question, why there aren't new Moseses today. So Jesus was the ultimate new Moses. But he was so definitive a new Moses that there aren't Moseses after him in the sense of adding something new. But all of us share in that prophetic task, and that is to pass on what has been revealed and to try to understand it more deeply each in our own lives. And what's really beautiful is that happens in the life of the church. And it happens um, not, um, yes, yeah, sometimes, um, learned theologians like Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, but sometimes simple members of the faithful who enter more deeply into the um, life of God. Right? And so some the church names certain um, saints to be doctors of the church. And some of the doctors of the church are unlearned people who didn't go to study theology, like St. Therese. Anyway, there are a bunch of um, doctors of the church who got a deeper insight into the things of God by way of prayer and by way of um, love. So it, both things are true. The um, revelations come to an end, but the doctrine develops by um, the church coming to, I say the church, but it's really individuals, persons in the church, and, um, and the church through those persons coming to a deeper insight century after century. So this book, that the catechism, it could, I mean, if we were to ask, if, if, if St. Paul had been asked, um, could you please write a catechism of the Catholic Church? It wouldn't have come out like this because this is the fruit of contemplation um, 
for 20 centuries. Not new revelation, but contemplation of the original revelation. And that really contributes to it. The, the example of this is Mary. Luke tells us in two occasions in his gospel, so Luke's gospel, he speaks about um, the infancy of Jesus. And um, he says that Mary, so after the shepherds came and adored the baby Jesus, um, she, Luke tells us she kept these things in her heart. And then later when Jesus, and when he was 12, he was lost in the temple and then found three days later. And Mary didn't understand. Why did Jesus, who had been obedient all this time, why was he disobedient and got lost for three days? And, and, and she kept these words in her heart, right? Meditated. That's, Mary's an image of the church. The church keeps these things in her heart. That is the, the members of the church, right? We're called to keep these things in our heart, to, to contemplate them, and God gives us insight. Um, and then another cause of the development of doctrine is that heresies come up. In, the, in other words, there are challenges. Not everyone believes. And sometimes it happens that, or frequently, it happens that people challenge um, what the church teaches. And that requires um, to, us to make a defense of what we believe. And when we have to do that, that very often means I have to think more deeply about why I believe what I believe and what it's based on. Right? And, and the church comes to a deeper understanding through that as well. So for example, in our time, a lot of challenge with regard to marriage and the family. And so John Paul II has um, brought a development of doctrine about um, human um, marriage, the family, and human sexuality. Right? In earlier ages, the Eucharist was challenged and the church had to defend it and come to a deeper insight. Okay. Questions on that? So um, this started from the beginning. So I give you here, this is just simply the first promise. So at the beginning of human history, um, there was an intimacy, original intimacy. We'll talk about this a bit later in a couple of sessions. Um, God was made man in an original harmony and that was broken by an original sin and right after that sin, we get the first promise of a future redemption. And that's simply so that long before recorded history, I don't know how, I mean, we don't know when this took place, but let's say 100,000 years ago or, or more, um, already God had promised something to our first parents, that he would put enmity between, this is speaking to, to Satan actually. So after the original sin, God said to um, the serpent, Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. That is, um, the, uh, so who is this woman? We'll see later on, much later on, that it's speaking about Mary and her seed, her offspring is Jesus, who crushes Satan's head. But Satan will crush, bruise his heel. Not so easy to understand, but the point is, from the beginning of history, there was some revelation given to our first parents about a future redemption. And I think we see some sign of this in all the cultures of the earth. There's generally some myth or understanding of a future redeemer and some hope um, in a redemptive um, figure. And so, so that would be the, the beginning of God's revelation. But um, we find out about God's revelation, above all, when he begins to speak 
to Abraham, um, so 4,000 years ago. And he calls Abraham. So in order to gather scatter humanity, God called one man. So again, he made use of Abraham as a mediator. And so Abraham lived in um, the Middle East and Mesopotamia, and he called him out from his father's house and sent him to a place that he would show him, right, which was eventually Israel, and he revealed himself to him and promised that he, Abraham would be the father of a multitude. And so he gave him basically two promises, that he, he was an old man, his wife was old, and they were barren, right? So Sarah didn't have any children. And so he promises to Abraham that he's going to be the father of this huge multitude and that um, all the nations of the world would be blessed in his offspring. So it's basically two promises, that he would be the father of a great people, right? that's Israel, but the promise wasn't only about Israel, it was about all the nations of the earth would find a blessing in his descendants. Right? And so that would be the church. So God revealed to Abraham, um, you could say this double mystery, Israel that would issue from his um, descendants and the church who would be blessed in one of his descendants. Right? That descendant is Jesus, right? who is a son of Abraham through many, many intermediaries. And so it's really with Abraham that we get um, uh, God directly revealing himself in this progressive building up way. And so he reveals himself to Abraham. And then um, after Abraham, the patriarchs, so it would be Isaac and Jacob. Um, and there's a whole drama about that second promise that in him all the nations will be blessed. Um, and so Abraham ends up having... Um, two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And so part of the drama is which one is going to have that promise to be the father of the great nation and in whom all the blessed. And so we know it's Isaac, not Ishmael. Um, and then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And so which one is it? And so there's a fight between them about who gets the father's blessing. Right? And so if you read the story of Genesis, it's all about this family feud, about getting dad's blessing. And it but it's a, precisely about the promise. And it's Jacob, not Esau. And Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the, um, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? And then there's a whole drama. Which of the 12 sons will get the messianic promise, the promise that all nations will be blessed, right? And so it's, and it turns out it's the fourth son, Judah. And why him? Um, and ultimately, there's no um, why Abraham in the first place, right? Why did God pick Israel? Um, and the answer is it's free choice, right? God chose them not because of their excellence, but because he had to choose somebody. Um, Yeah, and so God then formed his people, Israel, and progressively revealed himself to them. Right? So from, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes, and then um, through Moses, right? and then after Moses, the prophets in Israel. And always there's this double aspect that they're the chosen people, but they're the chosen people not for their own sake, 
but for the sake of being a blessing of all nations. Right? And, so, um, and that would be the promise of a Messiah. So going back to the beginning of Genesis, somebody would crush Satan's head. What would that mean, to crush Satan's head? To destroy, and so Satan has the power of tempting us into sin and bringing about death, right? And so the, there's a promise of a Savior who will destroy the power of sin and death. Um, to destroy iniquity and destroy division, right? And that, um, so the Old Testament is precisely this promise that progresses. The closer we get to it, the more is revealed about, um, so he's called the Messiah, and we'll explain that later, but it means the anointed one, um, someone who would, that descendant of Abraham in whom all nations would be blessed. Questions on anything? Right, and so it's, there's basically two lines. that so We get the patriarchs that lead to Jesus, but there's also, in Israel, a line of mothers that are really important. Right? So oftentimes people complain, um, Judaism, this patriarchal religion, and yes, there are aspects of Jewish society that are patriarchal. But nevertheless, in Revelation, um, a, a series of women have a really huge role. Sarah, for example, right? she becomes the mother of the Jewish people, being the mother of Isaac. And then um, there are women like, and then Rebecca, Rachel, those would be the wives of um, Isaac and Jacob. There are prophetesses like Miriam and Deborah, and Hannah is the mother of the prophet Samuel. And so she has a really interesting role in the Old Testament. She's the hero of one of the, um, of the books, and the book of Samuel, and she prefigures Mary. She has a song. That's uh, Mary, Mary's Magnificat is modeled on. And, um, and so these, and then there are also figures like Judith and Esther in the Old Testament. Judith um, ends up cutting off the head of this um, uh, barbarian general who is trying to conquer Jerusalem. And so she too is in some way um, prefiguring. So all of these women are prefiguring Mary who's kind of the culmination of this female line in Israel. Um, and it's a cooperation. Um, so we saw at the very beginning, God promised there would be a woman and her seed who would destroy the power of, of Satan. And we see the culmination is a woman, Mary, and her son, Jesus, who accomplished that. Right? And it's, they're prefigured in Israel's history. Questions on that? I'm giving a, sorry, I'm going much too fast over the whole history of Israel. So Israel had a bunch of blessings, right? So they are the chosen, so it's right to call Israel the chosen people. They were chosen for what? There's more than one answer. So why do we call them the chosen people? Because those are the people that God chose to speak to. Okay. First thing, he chose to speak through them to all of mankind. Right, so they were chosen for him to speak through. What else? Excellent. Yeah, they were chosen to be the people in whom God would become man. That's not a little thing. Right? In other words, God wants to become man from before he's created the world. 
And so he prepares for it by forming a people, by calling Abraham. 2,000 years before he's going to become man, he forms this people in which he's going to become man. And he forms them by revealing himself to them, giving them a worship, giving them the law, right? The Ten Commandments, giving them the prophets, giving them um, a particular form of worship, and giving them the promises, a covenant, Right, so he makes a covenant, a covenant we should think of a marriage covenant. Right? He makes a covenant with Israel and um, gives them the sonship. So all Israel was given to be God's firstborn son. And so he chose them for all of those things, but it culminates. So this is from St. Paul, Romans chapter 9, where he's, he says he's very sorrowful because so many of his people didn't recognize Jesus. But nevertheless, he says, they are the Israelites. To them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, and Rebecca, and Rachel, and the promises. To them, yes, the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we say, these are the blessings or glories of Israel. Right? And they still are the chosen people, right? Because they were chosen once and for all to be the people in whom God became man, right? And still, they still are that people in whom God became man 2,000 years ago. So he hasn't disinherited them. So that's out there, right? There are many, um, in the history of theology, many have thought that they, um, the covenant was, with Israel was simply broken and abrogated. But that doesn't make sense because God is faithful even if we're not always faithful. Right? And so he hasn't annulled his covenant with Israel. He's fulfilled it. Right? He's fulfilled it by becoming man in their midst. Questions on that? Okay, so we said public revelation finished with the death of the apostles. And that means in concrete, one of the apostles lived longer than all the others. Does anybody know who that was? John. John. Yeah, John lived to be um, about you know, 90 years old. And that was up to the, about the year 100. So he would have been the youngest of the apostles and lived the longest. And so with the death of John, about the year 100, um, public revelation is closed. So we, there's still what we call private revelations. But we need to distinguish private revelations from public revelation. Private revelation is when God speaks in a particular way to some saint or simply to some people that he chooses. Um, and we, we call these very often apparitions. So there have been famous um, Marian apparitions. Mary has appeared in the course of um, the history of the church in, in very striking and dramatic ways. The most famous I th and the most uh, magnificent is in our continent, she appeared in Mexico, Mexico City, to Juan Diego, to an Indian, a Mexican Indian, and um, revealed herself um, through her words, but also through leaving her image on his cloak that still survives today, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Right? Mexicans, yeah, this gigantic, but not shouldn't be only Mexicans. Um, but we don't have to, nevertheless, I believe that, but I don't have to believe it, and you don't have to believe it. Things like that, private revelation, is left for our judgment if we find that helpful. And it makes sense that if God sends Mary in something like this, it's usually because it's going to be helpful. But nevertheless, 
it's not the same as public revelation. Does that make sense to everyone? Another example is at Fatima in um, 1917. God um, sent, again, Mary to three shepherd um, children in this little town of Fatima, Portugal, and revealed to them certain things about the course of world history of the 20th century, about to ask them to pray for Russia. I, this was just before the Russian Revolution. These children didn't have any idea about the danger of you know, Lenin forming a revolution in Russia. But, but nevertheless, it was revealed to them to, um, to help us deal with the tragic, um, catastrophic events of the 20th century. So those, that would be an example of private revelation. Right? It's not necessary to be a Catholic to believe in Fatima, but I think somebody would be foolish if they didn't. But I'm sorry, I probably even shouldn't say that because it's left to our judgment. Sometimes church will celebrate feasts, though, and you'll find it in church you know, decoration, private revelation, like here at the Basilica. But what the church can't do is accept as a revelation something that contradicts. So those private revolution, revelations are given basically to help us live the gospel that's been revealed once and for all. all right, does that make sense? Yeah, so we don't expect any new public revelation. But doctrine develops. All right, I've run out of time, and I didn't get to this. But to end, so God revealed himself in all the ways that we've said, and what we'll start with next time, look at is um, he intends that to be transmitted, right? So he doesn't speak so that it would be lost, but obviously he spoke to us so that we could receive it living 2,000 years later. And so we call that tradition with a capital T. It's just the passing on of what got revealed, right? It wouldn't make sense if he would reveal himself and not provide for it reaching us today. And this is a difference between Catholics and Protestants. We have a stronger sense of tradition with a capital T as truly delivering to us um, what got revealed um, from the beginning. Right? And it simply makes sense. If he's done the harder part, become man and been crucified, he's going to make sure that, that the easier it gets accomplished, that we're going to be able to receive that 2,000 years later in the church. And we'll talk more about that next time. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. This is off subject, but um, I was wondering, uh, when I pray and stuff, I don't have as much love as I'd like to. Did any, is there any quick um, prayer? prayer things that you, ideas that you have that, to make prayer more, more soulful? And more yeah, soulful. just to ask for it and just use your own words. There are beautiful prayers for, there's a prayer in there for um, an increase of charity. And charity is the same as love. But in that red, little red book, yeah. But, um, I mean, you don't need any formula. That's the best prayer in the world is, Lord, teach me to love better and to love you. Right? And Jesus promised that everyone who asks, it will be given. Right? And all we have to do is desire it. Basically, prayer is unfolding our desires to God. Okay, and they were, Thank you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give you thanks, Almighty God, for having revealed yourself to us and brought us into relationship with you. Teach us to love. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. I won't be here next week. I'll be out of town. No class. So we'll see you in two weeks.